So we have been in a series for the last weeks thinking about the vision and the values for our beautiful, lovely church, Vintage Pasadena. And today we move into a new part of the vision and the values, talking about loving mission, of which obviously Alpha is part of. But today we're going to look at a particular sentence in our value statement, which says this, we grow as we serve God through acts of love and care, ministering to the lost, the lonely, and the least. What does that mean? Why is that part of other things that you might have heard in churches like evangelism and salvation and those kind of Christian words? Well, that's what we're going to do. And I will just say at the beginning, just a little kind of um, alert, I'm going to borrow a lot of material this morning from a guy called John Tyson. Uh, Some of you know John. He is a pastor in New York City, just an incredible uh, man of God. And he's just done some incredible research and work in this area. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, if you would like to turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and it'll be up on the screens uh, if you are able to do that. And I think someone is reading the passage. Yeah, Rachel's reading it for us. Yeah, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Awesome, thank you. Now there's a lot in that. Uh, If you were here in church for the first time and you thought, what on earth was all that about? here's, Here's the really short answer. It's about Jesus. Here's the slightly long answer. It's about the fullness, the entirety, the breadth and the depth of what Jesus wants to bring to bear on the earth through his um, mission. And we're going to unpack it. But before we do, let me just give you a little bit of context, a little bit of history. So um, I was born uh, in a lovely Christian family and brought up in that family to, to know and love Jesus. I remember I'm being about six years old, being taken to one of those kind of VBS summer camp things and being invited by the leaders there. If I wanted to, to, to kneel by, it was my bed. I don't know why they said your bed, but by your bed and to you know, say sorry for the sins that I'd committed and to invite Jesus into my heart. And that if I invited Jesus into my heart, that one day I would get to go to heaven to be with him. Maybe you, you were, did something like that. Um, certainly felt kind of serious. It felt meaningful as a six-year-old. And certainly by the time I was in my late teens, you know, I, I was, was all in for Jesus. And by the time I was in my late 20s, I was probably spending about half my sort of working life uh, helping to plant a church. And we would have these amazing church services on Sundays, just like this. wasn't quite as hot where I come from. But it'd be like, you know, worship and prayer, and people would get healed of stuff. And it was just incredible. 
But then the other half of my week, I'd go to run a company in the car industry. And our office was like in, in the docks. So think a bit like the port of Southampton. And it was like blue collar and like truck drivers and dockers and um, people who'd kind of like grown up in like really rough neighborhoods and car dealers. And, and it was like, it was a tough environment and I loved it. But my problem was is that I didn't know how to connect my two worlds together at all. I kind of knew that the people in the car industry needed Jesus so that one day they could go to heaven, but I didn't really fully understand why God had put me into the car industry or why he had any intent to do something with it other than for me to get a paycheck so I could go and plant more churches. It was a bit like I sort of had a picture for what I thought Jesus was about. My jigsaw puzzle had Jesus in the middle as the saviour. But it didn't really have anything around the outside that helped me connect all the different parts of my life together. Maybe, you know, you can empathize with that. For those of you here who are teachers or doctors or truck drivers or lawyers or whatever it is that you do. And I think the reason that many of us are probably, we, we feel that tension is because we grew up in a particular moment in church history. So if you go back sort of 200, 300 years, you get to the Enlightenment, which is this huge, great scientific revolution of technology and science and beauty, where, and out of it, like, there was this sort of theological strand called liberalism, not political one, but a theological one. And, and it said things like this. It, it said, like, well, you know, now we've got science. You know, we know that, like, dead people don't really rise from the dead. You know, they don't come back to life. We know that like virgins don't, don't really you know, get pregnant. We, we, we know that miracles don't really happen. And so in liberalism, what we kind of did is we took the Bible and kind of ripped out of it all the things that were a bit difficult and complicated and un, you know, un, unexplainable. But around kind of 1900s, a new movement came forward. It was called fundamentalism. And we probably don't like that word anymore, but, but it rose up to kind of speak into that liberal worldview. And what it wanted to say was like, but hold on, no. Like, the Bible is real. Like we said at church a couple of weeks ago. Like, it is the inspired word of God. It changes lives. Like, Jesus really did die and rise from the dead so that our sins could be forgiven so that we can one day have a heavenly relationship with him. And all of those things, of course, like, we would affirm in the church to be true. But, and if you grew up as a, I don't know, like a Pentecostal or a Baptist or a Reformed tradition or an evangelical tradition, charismatic tradition, probably that's kind of where your roots lie in your Christian upbringing. But why, where we kind of get a bit unstuck is that fundamentalism wasn't trying to give a picture of the whole thing. It wasn't trying to say everything about the Christian life. It was trying to answer the questions that liberalism was struggling with. And in fact, it often misses out some of the redemption story, the creation story that God wants to bring in the earth. And, and what we're going to look at this morning is the fact is, is that Jesus isn't just, he's not just about sinners going to heaven. He's actually got something bigger. And the something bigger he's got comes into four parts, which are these, creation, fall, redemption and renewal. Creation for redemption and renewal. And it starts in this really interesting point, which when I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, I never thought about that. Here's the interesting first part. When God created you and created the world, 
it was good. Didn't start with sin in Genesis chapter 3, which is often like I said to someone last week, what's it mean to be a Christian? And they said, well, I was a sinner and I was going to hell and Jesus saved me and I'm going to heaven. Actually, the story starts in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, it says that when God made the earth, it was beautiful. The human story doesn't start in heaven or in sin. It starts on earth and it's good. In fact, the human story ends on earth as well, by the way. You know, heavenly beings, you know, nice clouds and angelic things. You know, that's not really what heaven's supposed to look like either. It looks like a city coming down from heaven so that God would dwell with his people. And so God creates this beautiful, intricate world. You might recognize this picture, which was taken recently of moments after the creation event. And as God creates, it says in Genesis chapter 2, the beginning, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he'd done. Like God was like a workman, a creator, a craftsman, a manual labor, an artist. Like you can see this picture in like the seventh day of creation. Like God's got like mud on his hands. He's got dirt under his fingernails. He's got paint all over him because, because he's been actively involved in taking what was kind of these chaotic random elements and turning them through order into something beautiful. And I see him like on the seventh day, like wiping his hands going, yeah, that was great. As the passage just said this morning, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him. And God looks around at the created order and he goes, well, that's good. And that's good. And that's good. And then in the middle of it, he, he creates humans. He creates us, and he creates us slightly differently because he creates us specifically in his image. And in his image, he says, they're not just good, but they're very, very good because they carry my DNA, my very likeness. You see, and before the fall, like this is what it was like, and it was beautiful. Then God said, let, make, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And here is why God did that. This is the why that we ultimately were created, so that they, humans, may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in numbers. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves, moves on the ground. We were made to join God in that work of taking things that were chaotic and in their most basic elemental form and creating life and order and beauty so that raw potential could be turned into useful, wonderful, thriving things so that life would thrive. As one theologian says, 
Man is called to work the earth in order to uncover the rich potentialities hidden, as it were, beneath the earth's surface. On the most basic agricultural level, man cuts into the earth and sows seed which grows up into plants, which when carefully tended yield fruit in their appointed seasons. Dig deeper and the earth will yield greater riches, precious stones and gold, all which can be melted to make metals, basic chemical raw elements that can be synthesized in pigments and dyes for artwork. Fertilizers to increase crops, yield, rocket fuel to explore God's vast universe, etc., etc. In fact, if you look at that creation account, you, you see God even lists the raw materials. He's like, over there there's iron, over there there's stone, over there there's water. It's like part of our creation mandate was like Minecraft. Anyone into that? Anyone got kids who are into that? Right, but that's who we were. People who are joining in God with taking the raw elements of creation to make something beautiful. And it's not just, you know, like some of us are good at DIY and raw work and stuff, but it's not just that, it's, it's everything. You think about, think about music. Some friends took us to go and see Duran Duran on Friday night in the pouring rain at the Hollywood Bowl, right? But like music is taking like the raw elements of sounds, noises, and ordering them creatively, beautifully, in such a way that they come together in the perfect sequence so that music is made and the human heart can thrive. Right? Story takes words, it takes human experiences of pain and redemption and love and laughter and suffering, and it puts them into order so that humans can make sense of life and find meaning. You can say the same of parenting and art and business and politics and every sphere of life. The creation mandate was that you and I would be people who would join God in taking those disparate objects and turning them into something that would thrive. And that was even before sin entered the world. Creation. But then, of course, we do get to the second chapter. And the second chapter is fall or sin. In order to, to talk about fall and sin, well, we actually have to talk about you know, the devil and evil and demonic things. And we find that a little bit hard, I think, in our culture to talk about those uh, things because we've kind of turned them into something that's a bit of a joke, actually. Like on Monday, you know, back when it was really hot but not humid, as opposed to today, which is the other way around, we didn't know what to do with our kids on Labor Day, so we, we took them down to the Hollywood Waxwork Museum. Have you ever been there? It's kind of like Madame Two Swords kind of idea, and there's all these like, life-size wax things, and there's a whole section in it called Evil. And you sort of walk around it, and it's all the kind of ghosts and the ghouls and the Frankensteins from Hollywood. But, but if you walk around it, it's, it's kind of a bit of comical. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like Halloween, really. It's not really that, that scary. And that's how we often treat evil in our world. But in fact, when you read the Bible, you see evil on a whole other level because you see it as real. You see it because you see that there are, through it, there are actually things in the world that are even unfallen. Right? You know, genocide is not just the right set of or the wrong set of human conditions amplified. The child abuse is not just like a human thing that went wrong. There is something in the created order that's energized toward evil. And the Bible tells us what that is. It tells us about the devil. 
The devil, who was one of those created beings, one of the angelic forces who God made, but who God made with free will. And because God made the devil with free will, the devil chose to rebel against God, to turn away from God in his pride and in his desire for glory. And as such, he was was cast out of heaven. And what you see in in Genesis 3 and through the Bible is the fact that the devil then went to war with God. He went to bring curses and brokenness. And he went firstly and foremostly for God's very prized possession, creating in his image human beings. He went after them to get their authority and their abilities to bend them away from God toward destruction and toward himself. And that's what you see in that picture in the Garden of Eden because you, you see like, you know, here's Adam, right? You know, he's the man. He's got everything. You know, he's right in this garden. It's beautiful. He's naked. His wife's naked. There's like trees and there's food everywhere and everything's like incredible. And then the serpent, the devil comes along and says, oh yeah, but maybe God's holding out on you. Like maybe God's not really loving you properly because otherwise he'd let you eat from that tree. You should, you should get that. And, and Adam doubts. He believes the lie. And sin enters the world. Adam, who has the authority to manage the world under the leadership of God, suddenly gives up his authority in part to the devil. And suddenly there's shame and there's brokenness and there's sickness and they can't fully live into their call anymore, Adam and Eve, because they've lost, their, they've, they've lost their authority to the devil and suddenly like the world is not a neutral, beautiful space. It's a war ground. It's contested. That's why Jesus calls the devil the prince of this world is because he has dominion in the darkness and in the brokenness. But it's right here that Adam and Eve are and it's important to know, like Adam and Eve are not cursed, but the war has come to the earth, that from the very ground underneath them. And so whilst there's still beauty, there's still goodness, there's also brokenness. That while they continue to farm, they continue to parent, they continue to love one another, they also have to deal with sickness and brokenness and destruction and death. And I think that picture tells us so much of the human condition, doesn't it? We have both beauty, but we also have brokenness. Maybe you've seen you know, someone so good, so righteous, suddenly hit by tragedy and fall. Maybe you've seen someone so broken and evil, yet managed to create something incredibly beautiful. It's because we live with these tectonic plates of like Lord of the Rings scale warfare that goes on between good um, and evil. But you see, God doesn't give up at that moment. In fact, God says to Eve there in the garden, one day I will fix all of this because a savior will come. And he will crush the head of the serpent. And he will do away with evil through your line. The Messiah will come to bring victory on the world and on people's hearts, on every sphere. But then you, then you get to redemption. 
I love this one. Salvation. Into the very darkness, Jesus comes into the earth. And it's interesting that the Bible calls Jesus like the second Adam. And the reason he calls him the second Adam is because he gets right everything that Adam got wrong. Where Adam folded under pressure, Jesus overcame. Where Adam is selfish and all about what he wants, Jesus lives selflessly for others. Jesus is who, like this perfect person, good in every way. But even more than that, Jesus comes to defeat sin and darkness. And he does it by going to the cross. It's what we recognize as Christians. That the weight of sin, and punish, of sin was punishable with death. That the future for all of humanity was death and destruction, but yet... Jesus took on his shoulders all of that weight and all of that pain and all of that suffering and he took it to the cross and died. But he didn't just die, he rose again because the wages of sin is death. Death couldn't hold Jesus because Jesus had overcome. So on the third day, Jesus popped right out of the grave and rose again. And it's because of the cross of Jesus it's why we exist. It's because we, we proclaim that sin and death and hell and destruction and evil don't get the last laugh. That instead Jesus, Jesus gets the final word. And through him, the passage today says, he is able to reconcile to himself all things with the things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And I want to say to you this morning, you know, if, if you've never, ever got to that place where you just knelt before Jesus and said, I am broken and I don't have it all together and I do need you in my life to bring lordship and forgiveness and healing, then I want to invite you. That's the prayer I prayed when I was six and it changed my life forevermore. And it's a prayer every one of us is invited to make to commit our lives to become Christians and follow Jesus. But here's the thing, like, that isn't the end of the story. Because I think what I grew up with is like, do that, be good, go to church, hang out, wait for heaven. And in heaven, it's going to be awesome, Right? But if you get there, you've missed one more final and important part of God's story on the earth, which is the story of renewal. Renewal. Now, Jesus doesn't just say, go and hang out in heaven. He actually launches the church into the earth with its authority to do what? Actually, to take up the original creation mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve to implement the victory of God, to see what God originally hoped and planned and designed the world to look like and be and to exist, to happen. That's why we pray, you know, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just go, one day it's okay. That when you become a Christian, actually your eternal story begins then. 
we sometimes think it, you know, it's like the queen is in heaven now. We think, oh, it starts for her like this last week. No, for her, for me, for you, it starts the moment you became a Christian. You entered into God's heavenly kingdom and you have a role and a part to play in the story. And it is the story of bringing all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul Marshall, in his commentary on Colossians, he says this, the gospel is for all things. And it makes a threefold statement about the lordship of Christ. Everything was made by and for Jesus Christ. Everything holds together in Jesus Christ. And everything will be reconciled by Jesus Christ. The everything that is reconciled in Jesus is the same as the everything that was made. The scope of redemption is the same as the scope of creation. The creator and the redeemer are the one and the same in he- uh, thing, uh, and the same things in heaven, things in earth, things visible and things invisible. Dominions and authorities will be reconciled by the cross of Jesus. Now, I know that's a bit complicated, but it, but it basically means that actually we are called to join God in the renewal of everything and bringing things under Jesus' original lordship so that truth and beauty and goodness would victory, have victory and thrive and that we would have intimacy as creation with God again. And the beauty of that is that goes to everywhere. Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in the whole, it, whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry mine. Earth is not a sinking ship which we need to find the lifeboat to get off so that we can go and hang out where things will one day be okay. It is the domain of God's coming, created, redeemed glory, which means that when God looks at the world even today, he looks at like tech and he goes, that's mine. TikTok even, that's mine. Maybe not, I don't know. (laughs) Art, that's mine. Beauty, family life, politics, justice, the environment, Every part of the created order, Jesus says, that is mine and I want to redeem it. I want to fix it. I want to make it as it was supposed to be originally. And we are invited to play a part in that story. And that is exciting. When I found that out, I was like, oh, wow. Maybe God cares more about the car industry and seeing God's kingdom come in it than I actually thought. There is a purpose here for the things that we do with our lives. So quickly, how, how do we do that then? Because I think you know, Christians have often had a very um, clumsy relationship with culture, I think, haven't we? We found it very awkward to know how to deal with culture. So what do we do? Well, here's, here's some things. Andy Crouch says, first of all, there are four things that we, we often get wrong and that Christians have tended to do. The first one is we've t- tended to condemn culture. They're my grandparents' generation. I love them to bits, but they, you know, their main thing was like, don't. What do you do? I don't know. We just don't. We don't dance. We don't drink. We don't play music. We don't play games. We don't hang out on Sundays. You know, we don't do stuff. I felt like one day asking, well, what is it that you actually do do? 
It's like, well, I don't know, but we just don't do that. And Christians can so easily get into that place where we just want to say, well, we're just out. We're going to hide. We're going to run away. We're going to get as far away from culture as possible because it's actually going to taint us and damage us. But if you look at the life of Jesus, that's not really what he did. In fact, he had the name of a friend of sinners because he hung out in those places. The second thing we often do as Christians is we critique you know, on like a slightly philosophical level, a bit like Francis Schaeffer. You know, we watch films like The Matrix, but we're really going, what's it actually about? You know, what's the theological point here? The third one is we, we then often copy. It's like, ah, oh, man, the world, they've got good. They've got rock music. Uh, we should get rock music. So we're going to make our own version of rock music. And it might not be as good as the world's version, but we're going to do it anyway. Like the world, they've got great coffee. We should get good coffee too, so we're having our own coffee shops. You know, we just like this slightly imitated, counterfeit version of the best things of culture. And then the fourth one, which I think is where we, we go to ultimately when we've got nothing left. We're like, well, we don't want to be weird. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be seen as being against everything. So we'll just go all in, right? We'll just consume like, all bets are off, we're in the world, the world's okay, let's just go for the whole thing. But the problem is, is that even though there are, I think there are points when you can do all four of those in, in the right instance, none of those are a kingdom response. None of those are about renewal and bringing transformation. Rather, we need the fifth one, which is this, is that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to be the very people who create culture. We are supposed to be the people full of the Holy Spirit who join God in creating the very way that the world is supposed to be. Not at the back criticizing, but at the front saying this is what it's supposed to look like. That's what Jesus did. But how do we do that? Because we can like read that and we're like, yeah, let's take technology for Jesus. Like, we're going to go after TikTok. We want to make something better. And, and the problem is, actually, I don't think that TikTok needs taking for Jesus. I'm not sure that's really the approach. As Tom Wright says, the better approach is what Jesus did. The call of the church is to implement the victory of God through suffering love. That's what Jesus did. You know, in a, in a time in history which was full of violence and conquest and murder and political power, what did Jesus do? Like he washed the skanky, horrible, muddy, smelly bits off his disciples' feet. Through suffering love, Jesus modeled a better way to be. And I want to say, church, that's the same mandate you have and I have, is to point toward a better better way of being. So really quickly, how might you do that? Because that can seem a little bit daunting. Like, like, you know, some of you might be here with, well, I'm going to take Hollywood for Jesus. You know, I'm all in. I've I'm, I'm got a vision to take over the film industry. For a lot of us, that probably feels a little bit big. It's like, but here's the good news. Culture happens everywhere. If you live in a house with other people, you have a culture. If you go to a school, there's a culture. If you live on a street, there's a culture. If you work in a business, it's got a culture. In fact, anything that has story, values, language, ritual, custom, history, shared meaning is a culture. 
And you can, by the Holy Spirit, be a creator of better culture. Salt and light, Jesus says. So four questions as I finish to help you. Number one, what's wrong in the culture? What is it that we see out there where we just need to say that isn't what God originally intended it to look like? And someone came to see me last week and they were like, Ben, a public official in our city has just said that they want Pasadena to be known as the capital of abortion in the United States. What do we do? Because that doesn't sound like Jesus. What, what is it that's wrong that we need to say that needs to be stopped? David Pitchers, he says, every time someone turns to Christ in repentance, finding forgiveness and eternal life, the kingdom of God's extended. Each time Jesus heals, casts out demons, prevents destructions or raises the dead, the kingdom of God is advanced. With every healing or deliverance in the name of Jesus, there's a curbing of the enemy's powers and the frontiers of darkness are pushed back. Speaking of his approaching death and triumph through the cross, Jesus said, now the prince of this world will be driven out and the process of driving out continues today and we are meant to be actively involved in that. Jesus says, or Paul says in Romans 12, overcome evil with good. So what is wrong? Number two, what's missing? Where is it as Christians where we can see something where we go, that's nearly right. You've nearly got it, but let's show you the real version. You know, I think with like sex in our culture now, which it seems to have turned into some weird thing between porn and hooking up, isn't it like this role of Christians to say, no, but guys, there's something better than that. Sex is this connection of spiritual, emotional, and physical being within this safe space of marriage. Like, we want to show you how it's supposed to be in a better way than that counterfeit, broken, fallen version. What's, what's missing? Thirdly, what's good? What's already good? Christians are not good at this one, right? What's already good out there that we can celebrate? Now, unlike my grandparents who seem to be about against everything, where can we see beauty and truth and, and life that's already there where we can say, you've got it. Even if you don't know Jesus and it's author and it's perfecter, there's already something good. I feel like as Christians, you know, we're supposed to be good at celebrating. You know, we're the people who have had our sins forgiven. We're the people who know that our eternity is assured in Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. Like, we should be able to celebrate some stuff. Can we celebrate what is good? And then finally, what is confusing? And these last few years have been so confusing, haven't they? Like, education has been confusing. Truth has been confusing. Politics have been confusing. Family life has been confusing. And yet, we are supposed to be the people who bring truth and beauty and goodness and order out of chaos. Because that is who we were designed to be, so that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as in heaven. And I think that's a beautiful vision, church. And I long that we as Christians would therefore be known in this city for what we are for for the transformation that we bring, for the lives that we change. And that even if our friends and our family have no idea how Jesus fits into that yet, that they would see something so beautiful, so real, so true, that they would want to find out where its author is, want to find out about salvation and real life. So would you stand and pray with me?